Today's podcast has been brought to you by WeConnect Construction, a lead generation website for the construction industry. Check it out, www.weconnectconstruction.co.uk. It's decent. Welcome to my podcast, Sha Wasmond. Congratulations, you got the surname right. Yeah. <laughs> Good start. So you're a businesswoman, you've got an MBA, author, mother... Have I, managed, have I got everything there? Is it something else? No, that's it. That's enough for today. <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. Oh, I'm a good coffee maker. Although yes. I didn't make the coffee, actually, the machine made the coffee. It was an, it's an extremely good coffee, though, I must say. She taught me into it. It's amazing. <laughs> now, what we do with everybody when we do the podcast is a quick fire round. So we're going to say this or this, and you just pick what you're thinking. England or US? US. Arthur, our entrepreneur. Oh, 50-50. <laughs> I mean, that's not an answer, Shah. <laughs> uh, author. University or work experience? Work experience, and yet I went to university. Stay-at-home mum or business owner? Business owner. Lion or early riser? Early riser. Brexit or remain? I'm in. Career or self-employed? Self-employed. Exercise or wine? Exercise. Oh, wine for me. <laughs> <laughs> Hence my physique. <laughs> right, thanks, Sham. What I want to touch base on there is what, what you um, explained to us. You chose work experience, but you actually went to university. Doing yep. economics, was it? Yeah, I did an economics degree at the London School of Economics. So it would be fair to say that I had a pretty uh, academic background. Um, very grateful, got into Oxford, turned it down because I wanted to stay in London, but if I was being honest, that was because I wanted to party. Yeah. And I thought the parties in London would be a lot better than dry parties in Oxford. Um, <laughs> but saying all that, you know, I think, first of all, I think the world has changed. And secondly, when I look back, the best experiences that I had at university were about the people in them. And I think the discipline of doing the work, but I say that I ended up working full-time in my final year, so. Um, working, doing. Oh, <laughs> during my final year at LSE, whilst everyone else was studying their, you know, for their economics degrees, I was working full-time with Chris Eubank. Ah, so that's when you That's started. when I started. I was still at university when I started working with him. So, so let's rewind to the beginning. So you was born in the USA. Yep. I feel like singing that song. That's what I was thinking. <laughs> <laughs> and then you come over to the UK when you was 10. Yep, that's right. it. So what, what led you... England? Well, my mum's British and um, my dad's Italian-American, so I think when my parents went through a horrific divorce, my mum naturally just wanted to come back to her family, and uh, I totally get that. And so I've got dual citizenship, two passports, and it's interesting because when you asked me the question, UK or US, my instinct clearly said US, but if I had a choice today, I, which I, I do because I have a social security number in the US, I have a US passport... I mean, I know this isn't a political show, but with Trump in power, there would be no way that I'd be going to the US to live. Really? My, no, hell no. If he wasn't in power, would you? I, yeah, I would, I would definitely think about it. And I think I would think about it for primarily lifestyle reasons, right? So I think that, I actually think there are just as many opportunities in the UK as there are in the US. I think for my my world, the world that I operate in today, um, in that kind of online educator, uh, business mentor kind of, 
I create online training programs. The market in the US is so much more developed. Whatever we do here in revenue, I reckon we could pretty much triple within 18 months simply by moving to the US. There's just so many more people in America as well, isn't there? There's so many more people and they're way more open to the importance, even the necessity of both business development and personal development and particularly combining the two. And they love a Brit, right? They, yeah. they love a Brit. So we would do fantastically well out there. Yeah. But I just think that, I think that our politics are challenging enough, but in the US, I'm too opinionated. Like I, I, I couldn't sit in a conversation with people talking about, you know, building a wall and immigrants and not end up probably having a gun put to my head. So <laughs> probably best I stay yeah, here. So just swerve it for a few years. Yeah, just swerve it for a few years. <laughs> Although, you know what, the, the weather in California, which is where I was born, is very tempting. Oh, is that where you was born? Yeah. Well, California. Yeah. Never been. I've never been back. Yeah, loads of times. I go back to the States. Uh, I do a lot of speaking out there as well. So probably about three times a year. Amazing. So then when you've when you've come over to the UK, you've settled here. And yeah. And obviously I've read a little bit about you, but we spoke briefly before the podcast. You said you grew up relatively poor. Oh, I think relatively would be an over-exaggeration. When we came back here... Um, we were literally destitute like it was a it was a really really bad divorce and my dad literally um literally took everything from my mom i i personally think that that was one of my biggest driving forces to be financially stable as a woman yeah. because i'd seen what my mom had gone through i saw my mom having to stay in situations that under any other circumstances she would have left immediately but she couldn't afford to yeah. So she couldn't afford to put a roof over her kid's head without his income. Yeah. And I thought, that is never going to be me. And it never has been, you know. <coughs> Do you think that's what has driven you from... I think so, yeah. I think it's, a, it's, it's been a massive driving force for me. And sometimes you're conscious of it and sometimes it takes you getting older to look back on it. And, and so when we came to the UK, we lived with my nan initially. We were on the council waiting list for the council to house us and then um in order to be housed by the council we had to live in a hostel for homeless families so we literally me my mom my brother lived in a room smaller than the one that we're in now in my office and um we had to share a bathroom and a kitchen with five other families so i just remember thinking well i'm never and actually my mom said to me she said you know i, I remember this like really really clearly i just started secondary school i was 11 years old I couldn't tell anybody where I lived. I got off the bus a mile before, like, where the hostel was so that nobody could follow me or know where I lived. And it was awful. Like, as an 11-year-old going into secondary school, you're desperately trying to make friendships and everything's strange and you don't know how to... You know, you're just in that twilight zone of trying to figure yourself out. And it was just... Genuinely, it was awful. But I remember my mum saying to me, I want you to take a good look around and I never want you to be afraid of taking risks because whatever happens in your life, you'll never, ever be back here. That's, and so, yeah, and when you remember those kind of things yeah. and it just lives within you. So do, when you was at school then, do, was you aware at that point, so young, right, I, I need to study really hard tonight? Or did you have any idea in your mind of this is what I want to be or was it just... No, I think, <coughs> to be honest, I... Um, <laughs> I I was quite a handful at my first school. Like I went to a, an all-girls state school in Hertfordshire and I didn't like it. I made some really good friends, lifelong friends, who I'm still friends with today. But the school didn't get me because I was 
I guess they would have labelled me as a troublemaker. That said, I've never smoked. I've never drank alcohol in my life. Like, ever. No. Look at your face. Oh, my God. <laughs> never. Get a drink before I come here. <laughs> um, never taken any drugs, ever. And I think that's, again, because of how I grew up. My, my dad had a big cocaine habit. He drank a lot. Yeah. Um, and when you grow up seeing the ramifications of those things, you either go one way or the other. So you e either follow the same path or you go completely the opposite direction. Yeah. And I think I've always been... I think I've always been slightly concerned that maybe I have an addictive personality and maybe I inherited that. I mean, I don't, I have no reason to believe that to be true for sure. But in the back of my mind, I think I've always thought, well, what if you do? Yeah. So just don't even start. Right. So a big chunk of my friends don't drink either. Like a huge, and, and most of them work Maybe in the it's media. Just I'm Northern, but I'm like, no, what I don't. The hell? No, I, I honestly, I, <laughs> I don't, don't know anybody who doesn't drink that other than you. Right <laughs> <laughs> now, you've got one friend who doesn't drink. Um, but my mom drinks, my nan drinks. My nan's ninety-four, and she loves her Bailey's and some whiskey. And um, so I'm definitely not anti-drink. I'm definitely not anti-social drinking. Right, but there's a big difference between yeah. drinking socially and having drink problems. And so I just took the decision at a really young age that's not my path that's not for me I'm not going to take that risk and I got into a lot of trouble at school before I was 16 like I got suspended multiple times I got into fights I got into I was like a real tomboy I was very rebellious I argued with almost all the teachers apart from the ones that I liked and so my poor mom she'd get my school report and half the report would say you know my English report I never got less than like 98%. I got the top marks in the whole year, year after year after year. And the reporter said, she's the best student I've ever had. My French teacher was completely crazy, bonkers crazy, and I loved her. And she would say the same thing. And my home economics, bizarrely, I actually loved cooking, hated needlework. My home economics report would say, um, you know, like it would have been the equivalent of the A star now for my cooking. And then I got an F for my needlework because I refused to go to a lesson. Oh like I remember having an actual argument because even though home economics was one subject, you had two teachers. You had one for needlework and you had one for cooking. And so I went to all the cooking and I loved it and I really enjoyed it. And then I went to the needlework and I sat in there for one lesson and I just said, this is a complete waste of my time. And, and do, does the boys' school have this lesson? Because there was a girls' school and a boys' school, right? There were state schools, but, there was a, but they were kind of like linked. And I said, does the boys' school have this lesson? And they said, no. I said, well, then I'm not doing it. And that's, that's how I've been my whole life. Yeah. <laughs> like, like, I'm not going to do needlework. And why are they not doing it? <laughs> you can't force me. So then that, how did you end up? I mean, you must have been really intelligent because you don't get into Oxford by being so stubborn and, and picking and choosing, do you? You must have. No, I, I, had a, I had a wake up call when I kind of, my GCSEs, in the run up to my GCSEs, the final um, school report was basically a combination of like, she's gonna get straight A's and she's gonna fail. Like literally, it was like, it was as if I was two different kids. And um, I bucked my ideas up as much as I could at the last minute. And my mom realized I couldn't stay at that school. Like that school was gonna, be the, the end of me. And I think this is really important for parents who understand that every child is different. Some children, some girls would have flourished at that school, but it was not me. It was not my personality. Yeah. And um, she put me forward for scholarships to a number of private schools. And I was incredibly fortunate. And I really do mean there's not some kind of like 
faux humbleness. Like, I really mean I was incredibly fortunate. I got a full scholarship to the City of London School for Girls. In fact, Claudia Winkleman was in my class and we did an event together uh, back on July, I think it was July the 4th actually, to raise funds to help for scholarships for the school. Amazing. Because if it hadn't been for, and that school literally was the turning point for me. And I went from, and imagine this. <laughs> so the City of London School for, Girl is, uh, for Girls is literally the school that pretty much most of the prominent bankers, politicians, lawyers, that's where they send all their girls, right? And it's incredibly academic. And there's me traveling <laughs> an hour on a train, actually probably an hour and probably an hour and 30 minutes from Hertfordshire to Moorgate every day for two years and then back home again. So a three hour commute from a council estate. And there were girls being driven to school in chauffeured Bentleys. Yeah. It was like, you know, the tale of two cities. Yeah, fair, yeah. And then you've, and so then obviously you've done well at school, done your A-levels, decided to go to university to study economics. Yeah. For what reason? So truthfully, the, the school genuinely was completely, it, it just turned my whole life around and it made me focus on academics. And also, you know, as you get older, you get to your A-levels, you get to choose the subjects that you really enjoy. Yeah. And that makes a massive difference too. And when it got to that point, I wasn't 100% sure what I wanted to do. In fact, there was, a, <laughs> there was a period of time when I thought that I, um, I wanted to go and work in the UN. I didn't want to be a politician because they didn't make enough money. I didn't want to. Uh, I didn't want to be a teacher because they didn't make enough money. So I've been very clear, like, because I grew up so poor. It's like money was really important to me because yeah. it wasn't to buy material things. It was genuinely all I ever thought about is buying my own home. Like that was it. When can I buy my first flat? Like when can I? When can I own a roof over my head that's mine that no one can take away from me? Mm. And. I didn't think about being an entrepreneur or doing my own thing. That wasn't the path I thought I was going to go down at all. But I thought, do you know what? I want to stay in London. And my maths is definitely not good enough to go to Imperial and study anything like super uh, mathematically focused. Um, I loved history. I loved economics. I loved the arguments behind kind of how the world changes over, over time and how the economic cycles run. And, and I, have, I still have an interest in that today. So I just chose the subject that I was most interested in. Yeah. So I did that, and then I won a competition to write for Cosmopolitan magazine. And again, that was another time that my whole kind of life took on a whole new new transition because it was through Cosmo that I interviewed Chris Eubank. He then offered me a job. And that's when I think I started to think about being an entrepreneur and doing my own thing. And so then you've wrote an article on Chris Eubank. That's what the article was. Well, kind of. <laughs> what happened was I went um, to see the editor. She was legendary, Marcel Darcy Smith. And again, another woman who played such a big part in my life, who'd really believed in me. And you look back on things, you remember those people. You remember the people who put their neck on the line for you. And um, so she had chosen, there, there was, I don't know, I think from 10 universities around the country, she had chosen 10 girls to write for the magazine. And I was one of 10. And... Um, I was more excited about doing that than I was about studying. And um, I went into her office one day and I was waiting for her to come back. And I sat opposite her like I am opposite you. And there was this great big pile of letterheaded paper on her desk and it was emblazoned with, from the ed editor's office in the Cosmo red color. And I thought to myself, oh, I wonder if I, um, if I absconded with some of that paper, I could write Chris Eubank a letter and say that I was, um, commissioned by Cosmo to interview him. And then when he agrees, I'll come and tell her. And then 
you know, and then she'll think, oh, that's amazing. Well done, Char. And so that's what I did. I oh, nicked yeah. the letter to paper, wrote to him, pretended that they'd commissioned me. He somehow agreed to the interview. Um, I then had to... <laughs> I had to go and confess to her, and she just literally looked at me like I was crazy. She said, are you insane? She said, like, who on earth who reads Cosmo is going to want to read about Chris Eubank unboxing other than you? And um, she said, but do you know what? I really appreciate your ingenuity, even though you did steal from my office. She said, so when's the interview? And I said, oh, it's next week. Uh, I think it was like next week, Tuesday. And she said, oh, I've got an idea. And I said, Okay, well, anything, like, you know, said, how much is your student loan? So, obviously, like most students, I'd taken out student loan. And I said, I can't remember exactly, but I think it was about £13,000 for the, you know, for the full three years. She said, okay. So, she picked up her phone, and she called someone. And I didn't know who she was speaking to at the time until she got off the phone. She said, oh, yeah, I know you've been trying to get this interview with Chris Eubank, right? Well, and, well I think I might, be able to, um, I might be able to get the interview for you. Uh, if I get the interview, it's going to be £15,000. You can just buy it. I'll do the interview. You can just buy it. Okay, great, yeah. thanks. Put the phone down. She said, I've just sold the interview for you to News of the World. That'll pay off your student debts. Oh, my God. Right? How amazing yeah, is that? she's amazing. Right? Yeah. So I think sometimes in life, people come into your life for a reason. Yeah, that um, is. That's that's some woman. Do you still speak to her? I spoke to her last year, yeah. Oh, yeah, good, so she's good. completely retired now. She's probably, gosh, Marcel must be about 80 now, yeah. That's nuts. But yeah. it, it, do you know when people say, oh, you're lucky in business, or something happens? It isn't luck, but sometimes there is just a situation where you're in. But again, if you didn't steal the paper and write the thing, it's a matter of to being a, another nice person, I think, around yeah. you. You know, I think that's really important when starting a business, the people who you're surrounded with. Yeah, because absolutely. they're either going to help you or hold you back, aren't yeah. they? And so it, I think it's super they, important. They either want to push you forward or you make them feel uncomfortable. And so because you make them feel uncomfortable, they they want to hold you back. And sometimes the people who love you want to hold you back, not because they don't want you to succeed, but you're just making them feel uncomfortable. Yeah. And they don't know how to deal with that other than to stop you making them feel uncomfortable. And the only way they know how to do that is to stop you doing what you want to do. Yeah, that, I mean, that's summed up perfectly. I 100% agree. I was in a, a position at one point where I felt like, oh, no, I'm, I'm the person who knows most here about business, so this is no good. I'm never going to progress. So you, as much as you're not leaving people behind, you can still love people and, and be friends with them. 100%. You need to surround yourself with other people to help the progression in yourself don't that, you? yeah there's a great saying that if you're the smartest person in the room you're in the wrong room yes that well I, that's a hundred percent how I felt about well that's why I went on the apprentice not because I'm the smartest and I never was but I felt like I knew the most about business. but that's the same thing then you're the smartest person in that room right yeah. it's not about academic qualifications it's just if you're in a place where you know more than other people do in that room you're not going to grow so yeah, like I've just things. signed up to this mastermind and oh my god it's like a, it's incredibly expensive, but B, it's going to make me feel so uncomfortable because I am telling you, out of this group of people, I make the least amount of money. I have the smallest audience. I'm like, I am like almost everybody's, I'm not even sure if there's anyone else from the UK, but like 
I am definitely the smallest fish in that pond. And that's brilliant because as much as it's going to make me feel uncomfortable, it's going to make me grow because I'm going to learn from people who are ahead of me. If you don't do that, I think it's more of an ego that will sometimes hold people back and allow them to settle because they'll think, oh, I'm not doing that because you're the best here, the biggest fish in a small pond. Or you can take yourself out and be a small fish in a big pond, can't you? And I I think the only time you'd be held back is if your ego makes you stay where you are rather than thinking, I need to do something more. Now, back to Chris Eubanks. So then you've done your interview and you start, as you're finishing your degree, you start working for him yeah. doing this PR, is it? Yeah, so it was it was hilarious. So basically he had double booked himself on the day that I was supposed to interview him and he'd uh, double booked himself with the um, Beaches editor of the Daily Mirror at the time. And so we were both waiting for him at the Grosvenor House Hotel in the lobby, sat around the fire on the sofas. I remember it like it was two minutes ago and when he finally arrived he just rocks up no apologies he just says oh who's Shaw and I said that's me and he said hi right let's go do your interview and she says sorry and he went what she went what do you mean you're doing her interview first and he went well she's been waiting the longest right do you not know who I am and he just looked at him and went no and I don't give a fuck do you want to do the interview or not and it was it was hilarious but what I loved about him from the start was that he was just like, he then apologized for being, I mean, he was like two hours late. He wasn't like 20 minutes late, right? So I said, look, I don't mind. She can do the interview first. And he said, well, if we do it that way, I'll order some lunch so at least you can eat. So he had like the presidential suite at the Grosvenor House Hotel. So sat in the dining room, they were doing their, I will not have someone sit in on my interviews. She was really pompous. And he was like, I don't mind if we don't do the interview. That's fine. Yeah. Like, in his position at the time, he's like the most famous sports person in the country at the time. He didn't need to do the interview. So in the end, she agreed. She started the interview. But after 40 minutes, she literally got up and walked out. Really? She literally got up and walked out. And so he turned to me thinking that I'm this, like, super accomplished journalist and asked me what I thought he had done wrong. And me and all of my naivety just turned around and I just said, oh, Chris, I'm not really sure why you did the interview because you're not selling anything, you're not promoting anything, you don't need the PR. And that's kind of her style. That's her style of writing. That's what she does. And he went, you're right. And he called up his office, his promotion. He said, why did I do this interview? Anyway, finished that conversation. We start, we start the interview. Halfway through the interview, he just says, do you want a job? And I just said, Yeah. I had no freaking clue or what the job meant. I had no idea whatsoever what I'd be doing. And um, at the time, I lived in this little studio flat in Finsbury Park. And bizarrely, my boyfriend, who I was living with, um, was called Chris. So I uh, finished my interview with Chris Eubank and made my way back home. And when I got home, I put my key in the door, opened the door... And my boyfriend, Chris, was literally just standing in the hallway, like, looking at me, like this little tiny place in, in Finsbury Park. And I said, what's up? He went, nothing. I went, okay. He said, you've got a message on the answer machine. I said, oh, thanks. So I just went in, and I played the message. <laughs> and it's Chris Eubank. And he left me a message saying, when you get in, you need to pack a bag for the weekend. <laughs> Oh, no. <laughs> Hell. <laughs> you need to pack a bag for the weekend. And you're meeting me at Gatwick Airport tomorrow morning, da-da-da, here at 8 a.m. And that's all he said. And I got off 
And my boyfriend was looking at me saying, is there something you want to tell me? Oh I was like, oh, he's offered me a job. And he went, yeah, what kind of job is that then? And I was like, oh, my God. And then, anyway, it turns out that when I got there the next morning, I, uh, I flew with him and his promoter, Barry Hearn, to Manchester to go to Old Trafford. And that amazing was... Amazing part of the country. Amazing, <laughs> amazing. And it was the most amazing experience. We put on a fight at Old Trafford um, about three months later with him and Nigel Byrne. And, yeah, that was literally... I think I'm so grateful to Chris, like, literally. He, yeah. he, he took a chance on me when there was no reason to. Yeah, and then it, I guess he's given you all, all of your experience. Like, well, you're so much get experience. Kind of experience without already having an experience. You wouldn't. It yeah, takes somebody, sense. you know, with a lot of balls and backbone and foresight and I guess just that different kind of personality to say, you know what, I see something in you. I trust you. Don't fuck it up. Don't, you know, yeah. and get on with it. And so how long did you work with Chris for? So for must have been until he retired for the first time because he came back from retirement once. So um, must have been two years. And then, and then what? Oh, my my, my career is like such a such a strange <laughs> such a strange journey. I met Sir James Dyson by a complete fluke through a friend of a friend, and he wasn't Sir James Dyson then, and he just won a, his lawsuit against Amway, and he was still working from his house in Bath around his kitchen table so he it wasn't the company that anybody know that everybody knows today and I just he needed somebody to help him with PR because he didn't have any money to do above the line advertising and I met him and we just hit it off and he's just the most what I learned from I worked with James for nearly five years and what I learned working for him was worth more than any MBA anywhere he wrote the foreword to my first book, Stop Talking, Start Doing. He is just everything that you read about him, all the good stuff at least, <laughs> is all true. He is incredible, but really, mm. really amazing. And you worked for him for five years? Yeah. And so then why did you part ways? So James uh, owns 100% of his company, or at least he certainly did then. And I, I had got that real entrepreneurial urge to do my own thing or at least have ownership of something because you was working for him and it's rubbed off on you and, and I could see the value that I was bringing to the business I could see the impact that what I was doing was making on profit and sales and to be fair so could he and he paid me incredibly well like make no mistake about it I was paid more than all my friends who are working in the city by quite a long mile they hated what they did and I loved what I did so I was super grateful and always will be but I just wanted something that I could call mine. Yeah. That's it. And then you... Oh, then I set up, you know, that was, I set up one internet company, then another, and sold one, and then um, set up another one, got outside investment, and kind of a series probably of, of, of online companies for about eight to ten years. And, and then I, and I'm sure, especially people who watch The Apprentice and who listen to this podcast will know, Sometimes you just wake up one day and you think, hold on, is this actually what I still want to be doing? And you realize you've built something that is no longer who you are, it's no lo longer what you want to do, it's no longer the type of business that you want to run. Like, I, I am 100% sure that I do not ever want to run a business again that has a big board of directors or has, you know, 30, 40, 50, 100 staff. I, that's just not, that's not what I want to do anymore. And if other people want to do that, 
that's great. And the, the kind of the rub for me was I feel like the person I am today is who I've always been because I've if I go back to my cosmopolitan days, I've always wanted to write. I've always wanted to create content. And today, because of how technology is, I've found a way to monetize the content, right? Yeah. And maybe we couldn't have done that before. So maybe that was a gap that I had to wait to be filled. But I think also is how we're brought up, what we believe is true for us. Um, and for, for me, it was the realization that people who worked from home were considered to be running this lifestyle business. It was if every yeah. anyone who worked from home, all they wanted to do was make, you know, 50 grand a year, which I know that sounds like a real bougie thing to say because most people would be super grateful making 50 grand a year. But the the view was that if you chose to work from home, you were kind of like making cupcakes or doing crocheting or, or, or some nonsense, right? Yeah. Nonsense to me. If you like cupcakes, that's awesome. I'm all about whatever you want to do that makes you happy and makes you the money that you want to make, I'm all for it. But let's not judge people and let's not think that because somebody chooses to work from home, they have any less ambition than the person who wants to work in Canary Wharf because I am just as ambitious as everyone. But I would quite like to take more of the profit home, thanks very much. Yeah. I would quite like to keep my overhead and my commuting time to a minimum. I'd quite like to live on a royal park and be able to go for a run every morning, be able to have a commute that is roughly about 10 seconds from my back door, live in a beautiful home, have a great life, take 17 weeks holiday a year and create the kind of content that hopefully makes an impact on people. So what, what made that change? Was it the stress of business? Had you had your child when you was doing yeah. the business? Yeah, yeah. And so what... Was that the time when you was like, oh, I want to... So very, very sadly, I lost my son's dad when he was only three and a half. So I became a widow in, you know, like I was in my mid-30s and I became a widow literally overnight. And that changed everything for me. But it didn't change it immediately because when I look back on it, I think, I think I've had PTSD. Like, I, 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 there's big chunks... Two, two years at least, maybe three years, I have zero memory of anything that was happening in my life. Mm -hmm. And so I just kept doing what I was doing to keep a roof over our heads and to keep my son in school and to keep the bills being paid. So it took me to go through what I would consider recovery in order for me to wake up and really reassess what I was doing. And if I had my time again, I would have started writing books when I was 18 but I don't think I felt like I had the experience at 18. And, and maybe yeah. I didn't, but maybe I could have written something else. And so did you write your first book after all this? Yeah. And your first book is... Stop Talking, Start Doing. A Kick in the Pants in Six Parts. And so what, in, what inspired you to write oh, this book? Okay, can you relate to this? How many times have you had conversations with your friends and it goes something like this? I want to start my own business. I want to lose weight. I want to get married, I want to get divorced, I want to move to the south of France, I want to stop smoking, I want to stop drinking. People want to stop something, start something, but then six months later, you have the very same conversation with them. And I saw this with people that I really love and care about. They just weren't taking action. And I, I thought, right, 
we just got to stop talking about it and we just got to start doing it. It's not going to be perfect. We're going to fail, but we're going to learn through failing. Yeah. We're going to fail. We're going to fall. But if we do it together, we can help each other back up. Yes. And really, that's what the book was for. The book was for, you know, we have this one life and, and let's stop talking about it and start doing it. Will it all work? Of course it won't all work. Is that okay? <laughs> yes, it's absolutely okay. I think a lot of it is the fear of failure though as well, isn't it? A lot of people, you either have just got balls or you don't. And a lot of people just like to remain very comfortable. So two things. One, if you surround yourself with the right people, you learn how to grow balls even if you don't have them. Secondly, the more you fail, the easier it becomes. The quicker you learn, the quicker you get back up, and the sooner you go back to winning. And so this book smashed it. Killed it. 14 months, one four months as WH Smith's number one bestseller in their business charts. That is amazing. Yeah. Amazing. Congratulations. And then, Thank you very much. So then after that, you was like, right, that's it now. I'm an author. I know what I'm doing. And people actually want to read my book. You can write a book, but if, if nobody's interested, <laughs> then you're buggered. So you're like, oh, I'm going to write another book. All right. Was so I'm going to let you in on a really bad secret. Like, I think... I think it's really important to share this because I think it's a lot of people will listen to this podcast and they'll be thinking you're really confident I'm really confident and probably most of the time we both are really confident but I remember even after my book had been number one for 14 months in a row and I say this not to brag but to really emphasize a point that book had been number one for over a year in WH Smith business section and I still didn't feel like I was good enough to be a full-time writer. I still felt like I needed some kind of external validation to prove that I was good enough. So I still felt like I had to tick a box of being on this board of directors. I had to tick this box of having outside investment. I had to tick this box and this box and this box. And I still felt after that that, well, I can't really make a career of that, can I? Like, that's Why not a though? proper... Did you ever analyze it and figure out why? Yeah, I did. <laughs> I did, and I, I figured it out on the day that I received the front cover of my second book, Do Less, Get More, from my publishers. I opened it, and I was on holiday with my friend Michelle in Portugal, and I was so excited because the design was just exactly what I wanted, and she could see how excited I was, and she just asked me a question. She said, Charlotte, I don't get it. Like, why have you never just done this all the time? And before I could even think, the words fell out of my mouth. And I said, because creatives can't make real money. And so I had this limiting belief, super long-held belief that creative people couldn't make real money. So my mom, very creative, never made real money. So my view was that in order to make real money, and real money to me was, you know, the kind of money that would give me stability. Not, not to buy a Ferrari, but to buy a home that couldn't be taken away from me. And I didn't feel like creative people could do that. Yeah, completely. I completely understand exactly what you're saying. I understand that, that whole that you want a roof over your head that nobody can take, never having to rely on a man. But the whole discussions that you've had, the full process, everything that you said, I can completely relate to it. And exactly what you're saying right now as well. Where you, because, I mean, it is difficult. How many musicians are there, artists, whatever it and, is. And those are exactly the stories that I told myself. But then I realised, well, hold on a second. If J.K. Rowling was your mum, what would you grow up believing? Yeah, that you can 
write too many books as run and kill it. And be a billionaire. Yeah. Right? Like, it's all about our perspectives and our own reality. It's the reality that we choose to see. Because there is another reality out there that we can choose to look at. But we get so caught up in our own reality that we don't see it. In the space of the next 15 minutes, after those words fell out of my mouth, because as they fell out of my mouth, I realized what I was saying. I resigned from everything. I resigned within 15 minutes. I opened up my laptop. I'm like binary. I'm like all in or all out. I'm like burn every motherfucking bridge so there is no retreat. I resigned from everything. I resigned from my own company. I resigned from uh, my board positions. I resigned from everything. And I put myself in a position where I had no, no other alternative than to do what I feel I was born to do. So that's having balls. That's some big balls. Or stupidity. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going with balls, but you know. <laughs> balls, balls. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's all right. <laughs> the end was all right. So then you've, obviously, then you brought your second book. Yep. Killed it again. Yep. Now, we're on to your third book. That's yep. launched already. Yep, launched yesterday. Oh, was it yesterday? Yesterday, fun? yep. Amazing. Yep. And where, where can people get this book? What's the name of it? What's it about? <laughs> What's different to the other books? All right. So um, I'm super excited because this is definitely a book that's been in me for a long, long time. Um, and what, Sorry, Shat, what's been the gap between this book and the last book? About three years. Right, okay. about, about three years in between. Um, you can buy it on Amazon. You can buy it in WH Smiths. And actually, actually, I would love anyone who's listening who likes the sound of this book. By the way, I'm going to tell you what it is in a minute. Um, to just go into a WH Smith's travel. You know those ones, the, the WH Smith's you get at a, a train station or an airport or even on the motorway service station. And I'm going to say why I think this rather than directing you to Amazon because I know it's so much easier going to Amazon. But if you're an author or a small business owner or an entrepreneur, we all know how important it is to have people believe in us. And we all know how important it is that sometimes one person, one company believes in you when you're starting out that makes all the difference to you. And for me as an author, W.H. Smith, they did that for me. They, they, my first book, they literally, of course you can say, well, of course, because it was their number one bestseller, but how did it get to their number one bestseller, right? I'm not going to pretend that I'm going to win a Booker Prize or some literary prize at all. I, I like to think that I write what I'd call consumable content. I want to write for someone who has three hours to read a book, not three months. Yeah. I want someone to be able to read my books and empower themselves. I don't have all the answers, but I'm hoping that I can help people find their answers in a real practical way. And W.H. Smith believed in my style of writing. And so from the very first book, they have always given me great positioning in all of their travel stores, which is where they sell more books. So um, the vast majority of all W.H. Smith books are actually sold through their travel stores, not yeah. the big high street stores, but the travel ones. And they did exactly the same this time around. It's gone straight in at number 12 on the whole nonfiction charts. So not business, but nonfiction. Mm -hmm. So I'm competing with Foxy and all the like SAS guys and uh, the secret life of a barrister and all the famous celebrities' biographies. So to go straight in on our very first day at number 12 is, is amazing. And I've got W.H. Smith to thank for that, really. I, I think people in general, though, just love business more now than 10 years ago or 20 years ago. It seems everybody I'm talking to is self-employed or wants to start a business yeah. or has just started a business. And so for me, even before I would have started my businesses, I would have rather read a business book over celebrities I don't take yeah. much interest in celebrities but here's a, I have never actually 
today written, written what I would call a business book. So they are all what, uh, they're that hybrid, they're called smart thinking. So the first book was called uh, Stop Talking, Start Doing, all about procrastination. We, sh we sh you know, we just really need to, the things that we want to do, don't wait until it's too late. The second book was called Do Less, Get More, because I felt like I was going through a period in my life and seeing it around me where people were just on a hamster wheel going round and round, feeling overwhelmed all the time. And actually, if we focused on doing less, we'd get more out of life because if we focus on doing the things that were really important to us rather than, you know, how many times do you say yes to a coffee with someone that you don't even really want to see, which in turn means that you don't have time to spend with the people that you really do want to see. Yeah, 100%. So this book is no exception. Um, the only part that is, you know, specifically business related, I mean, you could say the whole book has elements, but it's specifically business related is the last part. So the book is called, da, da, da. drum roll please, <laughs> How to Fix Your Shit, A Straightforward Guide to a Better Life. Because I feel that we live in a society where we are constantly bombarded with all these messages about how perfect our lives should be and how perfect and amazing our business should be. And this constant kind of um, image of perfection is just so unrealistic. We all have shit to fix. It might be relationship, it might be your health, it might be your work, it might be money, it could just be the stuff that life throws at you that, that you didn't even see coming. And I wanted to write a book that gave people the tools to look at the aspects of their life that they wanted to change and help them empower themselves to do it. Not in some deep theoretical way, but in real practical things that they could do. So can you tell me then, out of your book, what are your three favourite tips? So out of my book, my three favourite tips is, it's not so much a tip, but it's, a, um, it's actually the first chapter around self-awareness. And it's having that conversation with ourselves about who we really want to be. Like, who do you really want to be? Not the person that you thought you should be, not the person that your parents wanted you to be, not the person that maybe even your partner wants you to be, or that you think you should be, but deep down, who do you want to be and what do you want to do? I feel that way too many people live a variation of themselves. And I was 100% guilty of that. So for those of you who are listening, it's like the things that you know deep down that you want to do that you're not pursuing, whatever that might be. Or you stay in a relationship that's not good enough because you kind of feel that it's better to be there than be by yourself. Or you're living somewhere where you don't really want to live, but you don't think that you are capable of earning the money to move. And I just want you to take a moment to stop and really ask yourself, like, hold on a second, who do I want to be? What do I want my life to look like? And then figure out how you make that happen. I think self-awareness, real self-awareness, is crucial to any kind of lasting change. So I think that's... That's a really important point. The second thing is just a little exercise that I do. Um, there's a business one as well. So let me give you the business part of this exercise. There's, there's, there's a way to do this exercise so that you can relate it to whichever ever area of your life you want to change something in. But you, you will definitely relate to this. And anyone who's got a business or is thinking of setting up a business will relate to this. So, so often, us entrepreneurs, we have so many ideas, right? Yeah. There are so many things we want to do. And a lot of us tend to suffer from overwhelm because we try to do too many things. And 
most of us don't take a second to even stop and analyze each of the things. We're just trying to do everything. And then we think, oh, okay, well, I'll figure out which one's going to make me the most money. And we, but I'll do it after we're always halfway down a path. So I just put down three columns. The first column is uh, put a little heart sign, like how much do you love this? The second column is a pound sign, how much money will it make? And, and the third column is a tick sign, how easy is this, right? And you mark it on a scale of one to 10. So you write down your three or five different options you've got right now, different ideas you've got right now. And out of 10, you mark it, how much do I love it? One being, I don't really love it at all. 10 being, it's absolutely the best thing I could ever do. How much money is it gonna make me? One, not very much. 10, I'm gonna be financially free. How easy is it to do? Because that's also really important. Like, is this gonna take five years? You might love it and it might make you a ton of money, but it's gonna take you five years to do it, in which case that would be a one. I can have it set up within the next two weeks. That's a 10. And then you look and anything that falls below an eight across the board, you should question why you're doing that. And anything that's eight and above, that's where you should spend your time and your focus because you love it, it's going to make you good money, and it's easy to do. I'm literally going to do this. It's so simple. Can I put my own children on the list, though? (laughs) (laughs) And and if they get less than an eight, can I send them somewhere? Yeah, you can park them (laughs) off for a weekend to the in-laws. Sell them on eBay. Right, I'm actually going to do that. It's super simple. Like, I do do a million things at once, and I have got a trillion ideas as well. Like, I am not pretending mm. to be, you know, some poet laureate or win the Nobel Peace Prize. I really just try to keep things simple without being patronising. Like, I don't understand why we complicate things. How much do you love it? How much money is it going to make you? And how easy is it? And pretty much almost the whole book is written not in a similar style in the sense of just columns and graphics, but actually it's about... I want people to buy the book and actually be able to consume it. I want people to be able to dip in and dip out and take from it what they need and go and action it, like execute on it. And I think that's a really important thing, what you're doing though, like actually having some kind of exercise or I know you're saying they're not tips, but these little things, what people can take from that, rather than it just being, this is what I've done, this is what I suggest, it's you're actually giving... Oh, all throughout the book, every well. single chapter has exercises in it and, and simple things that you can do straight away. And then my third tip, my third tip is, um, and this for me has been true my whole life and my whole career. There's a fantastic saying um, by Rumi, surround yourself with people who fan your flames. And I don't think there's anything more important in this life than surrounding yourself with people who fan your flames. And in fact, I'd go one step further. Surround yourself with the type of people who, when your fire is going out, when you're having a really shit time, whether it's in your relationship or it's at work, they don't just come around to fan your flames. But when they see that your fire has literally gone out, they bring the logs and the kindling and they relight the fucking fire. They're the people you want in your life. And they're the person that you should want to be in other people's lives. I completely, wholeheartedly agree with that. As I was saying, not just when it comes to an intellectual level, but just the people who actually love you. And I feel like when you first start off in business, everybody wants you to be successful, everyone. But then as soon as you are more successful than certain people, 
they don't want you to be successful anymore. But I don't know if it's they start getting worried or they feel threatened by it. Some people will support you through all of the stages, no matter what you get up to. And, and even people. when you surpass their success, they still want you to be successful. Yeah, I mean, I have literally, from starting my business, I'm going to say I've, I've gone into like five friends. Like right. five real friends. I've got associates as well and other yep. people who I, who I love and care for, but I've got Your five core. Five friends. And, and, and I feel as a woman, speaking to another woman, this is even more important for us women to listen to because I think that that great Madeleine Albright saying there is a special place in hell for women who don't support other women. Yeah. And it's I've seen it too often and I feel it's, it's, it's really sad and I feel it's really unnecessary because there is enough room for all of us. I do wonder why that's still a thing. Though. And it is still a thing. I, I 100% agree. Yeah. I don't know. I'm not, I'm just not like that, but I was like you, a tomboy. I've got four brothers, a stepdad, a dad, two sons, I'm not gay, so I've got a boyfriend as well. I'm just surrounded with men, and they don't have the same mentality. If one of their mates doing well, they're like, fair play, mate. And that was an what? impression of Harrison, by the way. What? Also, also, what the guys would do is they'd go, fair play, mate. Oh, how have you done it? Because what can I learn? Yeah. And I just, you know, I'm super grateful that I've been surrounded by women who are like that my whole life, whether it was starting out from Lady France at City of London School for Girl, Girls, the editor at Cosmopolitan, my friend since I've been 18. Um, I am constantly surrounded by women who support other women, but that is not the case for everyone. Yeah. And it should be. Yeah, well, hopefully start seeing some changes with that. we don't have to compete with each other it's not no you know what you should compete with yourself and collaborate with others yeah 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 definitely i mean everything you said literally everything that you said through all of this i can just totally relate to it all and i think you're a huge inspiration from where you come from to where you are now i'm sure all of my listeners are, are going to absolutely love this podcast so can you tell us your social medias i am going to tag them as well on the podcast so yeah people can always find you but what um, are your social media accounts? All right, so weird name, easy to find. Shah, S-H-A-A, Wasmund, W-A-S-M-U-N-D. Uh, find me on Instagram, my full name, that's it. Find me on Facebook. Probably, I, I, I've got a uh, Facebook group called The Freedom Collective. It's a free Facebook group. There's about 12,000 entrepreneurs, small business owners in there. Pretty awesome. Really excited about that. Um, yeah, I'm across everything. I don't really use LinkedIn that much, but you find me on Instagram and you'll find me on Facebook. Amazing. All the time. And your book, again, is called? How to Fix Your Shit, A Straightforward Guide to a Better Life. Available at all good bookstores, but particularly WH Smith's. I mean, I love the advert. You could do voiceovers <laughs> as well. Start that. <laughs> Put that on your list. <laughs> right, thanks so much, Sharon. Thanks, darling. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Please remember to visit www.michaela-wayne.co.uk. Subscribe to the podcast, leave your feedback and don't troll.